Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. In episode 3 of Culloden, Colonialism, and Capitalism, Scott and Mata will address questions from the audience. Okay, um, I'm going to kind of transition us now into some questions that, that we've been getting in the chat feed. Um, this first one is from Alice, I, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, Alice Triona, I do believe is the name. Um, the question is, I'm not sure I understand this. Would much of the imperialism have been hidden behind the chiefs being the hand that delivered the misery they were escaping, referring to the Gales who were emigrating? Mm. I, if I understand it right, that's, that's a really insightful uh, kind, kind of uh, question because I think one of the, the reasons that Gales do not feel they're being exploited by the British state is because it's filtered through these clan leaders. Um, I've recently written something which I, I think is going to be a little controversial, but we're, we'll see, where I basically argue that one of the consequences of Culloden is not that the British state becomes powerful in the Gale talk. It's the fact that it actually makes the clan leaders even more powerful. And the problem with that is that basically the British state turns around and says, okay, we don't want another rebellion. What's the best way of avoiding another rebellion? Well, building forts is very expensive. We're willing to do it because we're scared, but building forts is very expensive. So what's a better way to do it? Let's get the clan chiefs on side. So while they're making all these legal changes to the clan system, they're also subtly giving the clan chiefs power. And that means that the clan chiefs are actually the ones that are implementing many of these aspects of colonization and many of these capitalist changes. And so for, for poorer Gales, when they see what's happening, it's the clan chiefs that are responsible. It's not the British state that's kind of creating the conditions for this to happen. It's the clan chiefs. And there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful poem about um, uh, that's written, uh, I think, around 1800, um, in which uh, a particular Gallic poet says, uh, I can't wait for the French to come to chop off the heads of all the landowners, um, uh, which basically captures this, this change that's happening whereby poorer gales are seeing the clan chiefs as the enemy rather than, um, uh, rather than the British state. And so when they go, and to, to answer the question, when they go to North America, these people are very reluctant to reestablish clanship in North America. And so even people that end up going with their clan leaders and the famous kind of clan, you know, uh, emigrations. Yeah, migrations, yeah. Yeah. When they arrive in America, the first thing that many of these poorer gales do is they leave and go somewhere else because they want to get away from that system. So I hope that answers the question. I think so. But here's, here's another one. This one is from Richard Walker. What impacted the lack of education and regional communication on English imperialism, 
maybe I read something wrong. Hold on. What impacted the lack of education and regional communication on English imperialism of, of Scots? Not sure. Uh, hold on a minute. Let me see if I can rephrase this question right. I think what he's getting at is what was the impact of the of the lack of education and um, you know the the hardships of communication at the time uh, have or conduce was conducive to the imperialization of Scotland and and the Scots in particular, um, especially given that the I, I forget what the percentages is, but I, I do believe that the Gales were several percentage points lower in. Um, uh, uh, shoot, I just lost the English word for it. Um, when you can read versus you can't yeah, read. L- l- yeah, literacy. Thank you. So the, the Gales were, were several percentage points higher illiterate than their English counterparts. Is that correct? Yeah. This is, this is, this is tough because there, one of the other, one of the, the, enduring stereotypes of the Gale is that they are kind of up away in northern Scotland and kind of kept to themselves. The reality is that the Gales are cosmopolitan people. You know, as as your pictures at the start of this presentation showed, you know, there's German woodcuts of Highlanders in Germany in the 17th century. There's Gales who are fighting for Gustavus Adolphus during the, the Thirty Years' War. There are Gales who are out in American plantations and investing in American plantations. So Gales have a are a cosmopolitan people who see a lot of the world and understand how a lot of the world goes on. At the same time, literacy rates are generally lower in the Gale talk than, say, elsewhere in lowland Scotland. One of the great tragedies. I think, um, and this goes back to what we were talking about right at the start, which is how much is uh, is Culloden a turning point? If you want to talk about turning points for Scottish Gaeldom, probably the most important was the 1872 Literacy Act or Education Act. And that's the one that mandated English education. There are about as many Gaelic speakers in the Highlands in 1870 as there were in 1745. Gaelic does not inevitably decline after Culloden. Far from it. You know, in fact, the the number of books published in Gaelic expands exponentially in the 50 years after Culloden. What happens in 1872 is English is mandated as as the language. And so when I say it's complicated and to try and answer the question, colonization can, can ha- or, or, or lack of formal education can be both a benefit as well as a drawback when you're dealing with colonization. Because colonization is often filtered through schooling in the English language. And so... I wish I could provide a better answer, but it, just to kind of complicate that picture, you know, was lack of formal education a problem or, or did it make British imperialism easier? Actually, probably the opposite. Because you can't. The lack of established formal patterns of education probably protected Gaelic, at least until the late 19th century. 
Well, you, you even mentioned in your book that some of the um, the regular uh, drill patterns were being printed both in Gaelic and in English uh, for the Highland recruiters at the time so that they could sort of bridge this problem of, of uh, language for those who didn't have much or couldn't speak English. So, yeah, the I don't I, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think I've, I've seen anybody really like study that particular that particular focal point and how much illiteracy versus literacy really affects coloniality you know yeah the bulwark or is it a is it an inroad that's a, that's a really good question i'm not sure it, it's a really good question now now some of the examples from elsewhere in the british empire um english education or or you know kind of protestant education does have an effect of undermining indigenous cultures yes. but it also teaches people about the 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 problems of British imperialism. So it's really interesting. Many of the great anti-colonial leaders of the 20th century are educated in British schools. So Jomo Kenyatta in Kenya, he's educated at a Scottish Presbyterian school in Kenya. Mahatma Gandhi, of course, has a British education. Um, uh, and there are numerous, you know, Nehru, uh, they all have... British educations, uh, and it's through that they recognize what the British Empire is doing to their countries. It's a double-edged sword. So here's an interesting question that was uh, posted in the chat a little bit earlier. Um, this is from Koresh McVahan. Um, I've heard the clan system as having been described as proto-communal economy, especially when discussing the, in, the inalienable right of dulchus which is um, Gaelic for right of heritage and right of um, tradition and, and uh, how you belong to the overall society. Um, the question is, how accurate is it to say that clan kinship contained these elements of socialism? Um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question too, because I often talk about the socialistic aspect of Gaelic culture versus our uh, more materialistic uh, capitalistic society that we have here in the U.S. when I'm teaching my students. Um, well, before I insert my opinions on that, why don't you an answer with um, what you have? It's, it's a wonderful question, and it's it's one of those great questions that's very difficult to answer, which is, which is the best type of question. Um, I would draw a distinction between communalism and, and dare I say it, communism. Um, so social socialism, communism, a, a kind of product of industrialization in terms of, of thought process, the emphasis on uh, sharing things collectively. That is an ideology that very much comes out of, of the process of industrialization. And it's a very modern idea. Communalism, whereby the entire basis of society is wrapped up in keeping things as stable as possible. Because as soon as you have social disagreement, your society starts to fracture. Um, is very different. And so effort, typically speaking, efforts to read um, modern ideologies onto the past are typically fraught with danger because what you're doing is you're applying a, a model 
that is the product of a particular time and place and trying to read it onto the past. And it's very actually similar with concept. So an awful lot of medieval historians are now in the process of trying to apply race to the medieval period. The problem with that is, of course, race as a concept and a construct is, is largely an 18th and 19th century idea. Now, this is not to say that skin color did not mean something in the medieval period, but to apply something that's developed in the 19th century and then try and read it back is going to be frolicking. And I think it's a similar type of thing, trying to read um, a, a kind of more equal idea onto clanship is very difficult because clanship was deeply hierarchical. It may have been communal in terms of holding things in common, but it's very hierarchical. Whereas modern uh, social kind of ideas are based on equality, which clanship most certainly was not. I think the only thing we can really glean from that is sort of like the when looking way back in history is the the historical foundations of what we would call today a socialist society like a clan system versus uh, a, an economic society like the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire is very much driven by economy even though they they had these kind of ideas in their philosophies and their and their government pre, governmental precepts but trying to kind of look at the difference between, you know, Caesar's empire and the French Gauls on the continent and the way their two societies were, were differentiated. There are a lot of differences, but there was also a lot of overlap. So you can't really like completely separate them like that and say that the Scots are socialists and the Brits are economic, you know, are capitalists, right? It, it, it's not that easy, that, but there are some, there are some interesting things that can be extrapolated from that. Cause I often sit around myself at home and think, gee, what would Europe have been like if Caesar lost right? <laughs> and, and the Roman empire fell and the, the Celts like swarmed Europe, like how would European history be different and how would our whole idea of, you know, the concepts of society be different because it would be radically different than what we have today. Um, but you know, those are all going to ultimately be hypothetical questions because that's not the way it happened. So trying to apply those uh, mindsets to modern day stuff is yeah, really tricky. Yeah. At the, at, at the risk of depressing everybody, there was a, 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 a 19th century philosopher who once said, I, I doubt whether anybody truly fights for freedom. They fight for the power to oppress others. Um, and, and there's a certain that's very nihilistic <laughs> yeah power begets power yeah well I mean it's true though yeah so I, I I don't agree with Nietzsche but a lot of what he said was absolutely true right <laughs> um, so uh, actually Rick has a question here that will probably be pretty good to wrap this all up because we're now approaching like 322 at this point um, he he both he and Michael Newton say where where does where does all of this leave us in thinking about what to do today to address the injustices left by empire and racism and all these forces that are in play? And that, again, that is that is a I should um, go along with that. I should state that that is a topic that we're going to address more in detail in some future programs that we plan up here. Um, but as a good, you know, uh, transitional point, can you just kind of give us a and that there's no way that you can really do this with a brief answer, but as best you can. 
how it, based on your researches, what do you think as a professional in this regard are like some of the more appropriate steps that we should take to combat these kind of injustices? Mm. Uh, I would, I would, with regards to the Gaelic language and the Gaelic culture, both here and in Scotland and in Nova Scotia. I, I would love to take the Fifth Amendment here if I could. You know, <laughs> so many amendments to choose from. I, I think I'll take the Fifth. Um, <laughs> and, and I would love to say that as a historian, my field is the past rather than, than the present. But I, I would offer two suggestions. The first is to recognize, uh, as I was trying to emphasize, the importance of narrative. I think once we begin to understand that the things that we think we know are the product of narratives, are the product of uh, efforts to select and develop certain ideas for the benefit of a particular group of people. Once we do that honestly about ourselves and about other people, I think that's an important part of beginning to break down the artificial barriers that we've placed between ourselves and other people. And I think once we start doing that, we will be better prepared to listen to how other people have experienced history. Um, and to recognize and appreciate that other people's experience of history is not necessarily the one that we've been taught or the one that we think is right. So that would be the first thing I would say. Okay. The second thing I would say is I think it is really important to try and understand how, again, the political, the economic, and the cultural all come together. If you want to be able to understand how history has affected different groups, I don't think you can just turn around and say, well, this one thing happened, and as a result of that, this is how things are. I think you've got to appreciate that political, economic, and cultural forces have all come together. And therefore, it's very difficult to unpack those. It would be wonderful if we could just say that all the evils of this world are down to colonialism. And to say, okay, well, therefore, we deal with the legacies of colonialism. The problem with that is that we're left with a great tradition. I, I'm, I'm not here to say that capitalism is bad. That's, that's not the objective. But to say it is capitalism is, is deeply embedded with colonialism and colonialism within capitalism. Right. And you have to try and understand how those two things have been linked together. Otherwise, you will not be able to deal with the legacies of those two things in the modern world. If we just say, okay, it's all about colonialism, I think we're going to miss a large part of the story. Correct. Correct. I now, I'm not, I don't know what we can do. I, I, I wish I could have a better answer for what we could really, you know, actually do, you know. Um, it, but that, that's the second thing I would say, to, to try and understand those, those 
twin forces and how they work together. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's all very important stuff. I, sh- I have to make a, a little word of apology. Uh, Rick wanted to ask that final question, and I didn't see it in the text feed before I scrolled all the way down. Rick, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, no. As you did you did great. I just wanted to make sure it was there because a lot of what we're trying to do here is talk about history for the purpose of kind of looking at how it shapes a, a path in the future for us. You did great. So um, I think the, the concluding thing that we can kind of take away here from today's talk, and, and I want to express again my thanks to Dr. Jenick for, for doing this, is that what imperialism ultimately does to another group of people is it, it, for, it forces a narrative that is created by the empire to be created and, and perpetrated upon the, those people and other people as well, which is created without the inclusion and the input of that very people that they are creating an image of. So we as American, as Americans of Scottish descent can say with a certain degree of honesty that we've been handed a history, a narrative history of the, of our Scottish ancestors that was not necessarily totally completed and created by our own ancestors, but by another group. And that's, that's an important point reflecting back on what you just said to understand, because that's, that's part of how all of this kind of like wraps together. Uh, And it's very easy to see how that would work in our advantage over here as white Americans, when we're trying to reflect power on other, other minority groups is here uh, over here as well. All right. Awesome. Well, I want to say, Thank you very much again to Dr. Jenick, and uh, thank you very much to all of you today who have joined us for this discussion. These are really heady, complicated, emotionally perilous topics that strike at things like self-identity and how we view ourselves over here as both Americans and as Scots, both here and abroad, I should say. Uh, and you know, there's there's been a, a lot of thank yous pouring in. I want to say shade doveha to all of you who are who are um, saying thank you. And um, it this this series continues, right? We do not plan on stopping here. We have many more guests that we're lining up. I'm in a meeting tomorrow with the relatively famous uh, Angus McLeod from Cape Breton. Um, we're going to be talking about possibly bringing him in. He will know people in the indigenous community where he lives. So we can talk about things like how the Gales interacted with um, the indigenous community up in Cape Breton. We have a whole long list of other presenters we're going to be trying to bring in. And I, sh- I would be remiss not to announce that the first episode or the first, um, not the episode, but the first interview that I did with Michael, Dr. Michael Newton a couple of months ago is now... Uh, available in podcast form. And it's and we broke it down into three 30 or 45 minute episodes. So it's a little bit more digestible in that format. It's audio only, um, but we will be sending out um, specific announcements about where you can get that within the next couple of days. We plan on doing the same thing with this one so that, um, you know, that, that this, this kind of discussion can be reached by a wider audience and by more people. And we'd really appreciate it if all of you who have been attending both the previous and this one, uh, this event to spread the word about what we're doing here, because this, these are topics that need to be had uh, today, both in, in regards to our own culture here in America and in Scotland and England and Canada. Um, so 
thank you again for participating and, and um, being so interested in a topic that many people would av- normally avoid um, due to the potential headiness and emotionality of it all. Okay. So could I, could I very quickly add, I, I know there's been a lot of comments in the chat and I'd love to be able to answer if I can. So please, if, if you've got any questions, follow up questions, um, please send them to my email. Um, just look at the history department of the United States Naval Academy. Um, you'll find my name uh, and please just reach out um, if you had any questions or thoughts and I would love to engage. Um, so, but thank you. Um, um, hi, Naurum, you know. Yeah, I guess sound kuchok. So it's it's really great for us that you're here as well. So again, thank you very much, Morin Tanguth. And uh with that, I guess I should say uh dunya, I guess So good good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much for coming. Oh, <laughs>